0: on Podcast Network.
1: Hey, folks, and welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where some friends from Philly get together to talk about movies. I'm Dave. I'm joined by Connor and Sam. Christine is still on a a summer sabbatical taking some time off and... uh, relaxing and uh, taking in the sights. I'm looking forward to hearing what she has to say when she gets back. I'm sure she'll have some interesting insights. And I'm sure going to miss her this week when I think she would have been a real ally for me. So it's going to be very, very fun to uh, to carry on with this episode in her stead. But of course, before we begin, we want to thank the Movie John Podcast Network, who have hosted us for a long time and host a lot of other really great podcasts that you should check out. Uh, that are all Philly-based, and most of the movie-based. One of them, Formula One racing-based. Not listened to that one yet, but I'm going to. I swear to God. Uh, as for uh, everything else, how is uh, how's everybody doing? It's Connor and Sam. It's uh, it's been a, a fun uh, a fun month where we've been talking about movies that we just selected at random. Uh, but before we dive into my choice for it, how have you guys been? What have you been watching? And what's new?
2: I love that we continuously give the, the Formula One podcast a shout out. Um, that's it's getting like a lot of
1: traction on here.
2: My favorite thing. And it's always followed by the, I haven't listened to it yet, <laughs> but I will. <laughs> I love that. Um, that's like one of my favorite running jokes of butter with that. Without a doubt. Other than that, though, I'm fine. Uh, I watched, oh shit, what's it called? Oh, I watched um, this documentary on Netflix called Girl in the Picture. Um, it is a wild ride. It's really, it, it shows you like just how deeply depraved people can really be. Uh, I always feel like I dig to the bottom and then get surprised yet again. Um, it's a really horrific story and it's, it's you know, it's, it's these moments where you know a lot in the true crime community people are always like well should we really be talking about the the like the worst moment of a person's life and should we really be making shows and podcasts that not glorify the, the these things that have happened but kind of and it's it's a documentary like this that really says, you know what it actually is worth it this woman who was murdered and her identity was lost for decades um, not just because of this uh, documentary, but in, in some parts um, the woman was finally identified, and her all her family knows, and they're uh, figuring out better ways to remember this person's life by so it, it's just kind of nice to to really have those moments of These things matter, too. Interesting.
1: What is that on? Netflix. Okay.
0: Yeah, that that sounds really interesting. And your point about, you know, the worst day in someone's life, that kind of reminded me of Under the Banner of Heaven, which I think I mentioned a few weeks ago that I finished, when I feel like that miniseries uh, on FX, uh, Daisy Daisy Edgar-Jones, a British actress, plays Brenda, who's the one who's murdered, and I feel like that show does a really good job of, like, fleshing out who she was as a person throughout the seven-episode run. Your story reminded me of that. I saw a 2022 movie that I absolutely loved, and that was X, set in 1979. A group of up-and-coming actors in the adult film industry go to a farm uh, to shoot an adult film, and the people who live there don't quite like that, and that's kind of all I'll give away. Uh, if anybody is a fan of horrors, of slasher movies, um, it pulls a lot. It's, it's not parody or anything like that, but it it wears its influences proudly while also poking fun at the genre um, with some really interesting kills, some really uh, fantastic editing um, and splicing in. of I don't know if it was actually shot on film, but like, you know, the movie that they're shooting, you see, like, looks like on, you know. Uh, actual film itself. So I thought X was uh, terrifying in a lot of ways, uh, really funny in some ways too, uh, and does some really great twists with who the actual bad people, you know, the motivations of the villains of the movie. So it's not, uh, I rented it on Amazon for a few bucks, but definitely recommend X uh, if anybody's a fan of horror or slashers.
1: I've been meaning to see that. It sounds like a perfect merger of Boogie Nights and Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which are two movies that I really adore. You are not wrong. <laughs> well, that's great. Um, we're looking forward to hearing uh, some field reports from Christine. Maybe we'll send her a text, see what, she, see what she's thinking about, see what she's been absorbing in the meantime. Uh, but of course, as always, we miss her and wish her well. And uh, as I said at the onset of this episode, would have been a valued cohort in this, uh, this discussion. I think this may be the first uh, kind of like explicitly pronounced art film that we have covered perhaps, maybe with the exception of um, My Winnipeg, which of course was a Christine pick, uh, but I think this one's gonna be really interesting. This, uh, for our grab bag month, just movies that we really appreciate, movies that we want to illuminate, and movies that we want to talk about and explore in conversation. And one that really stood out for me recently, uh, it's one that I mentioned a few episodes ago, I caught during uh, my my little COVID vacation of sorts, was uh, a film by Roy Anderson, Swedish director Roy Anderson, Uh, who was initially renowned for his commercials, (laughs) actually renowned uh, in particular by Igmar Bergman for making some of the best commercials out there, which is an interesting thing for Igmar Bergman to say. Uh, But Roy Anderson, a very interesting figure, and the director of the film we're talking about right now, and that is uh, the year 2000s, uh, Songs from the Second Floor, a Swedish dark comedy-drama that uh, stars non actors and uh, features 42 different, or, excuse me, 46 different episodic vignettes that are tied together to create a narrative or at least to convey theme. I suppose the most succinct way that I could summarize it, and perhaps the best written way that I have found to summarize it, uh, actually comes to us from Roger Ebert, who gave the film four stars in the year of its release. And this is his introductory summary In a sour, gray city filled with pale, drunken salarymen and parading flagellants. Everything goes wrong, pain is laughed at, businesses fail, traffic seizes up, and a girl is made into a human sacrifice to save a corporation. Roy Anderson's songs from the second floor is a collision at the intersection of farce and tragedy. The apocalypse is a joke on us. You have never seen a film like this before. You may not enjoy it, but you will not forget it that being uh, Ebert's introduction to the film. Uh, So I'm pretty new to this, but I've seen it a few times now. Uh, It's really risen through the ranks for me. But I also know this to be the first time that either of you are seeing this. So before we get into uh, some of the nitty gritty, some of the details, and uh, some of those episodic vignettes that we've, uh, we've alluded to, what was your reception for this film? What did you think about it? Did you think it worked? Did you think it didn't? Do did you think its themes resonate? And do you think it was uh, worth the time at uh, just over an hour and a half? Uh,
0: God. It's a, tough, <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a tough movie to talk about. And I think, yeah, we really haven't covered um, quote-unquote parkhouse house kind of movies before. This is absolutely not something in my wheelhouse cinematically. Yeah, you know, we talk about, and I feel like back in the day, we mentioned Roger D. We were a lot in his reviews. And this one feels like particularly appropriate. I don't know if I, I would not give it four stars, but it is a hard movie to forget. Um, I was surprised by how much I laughed at it. There were stretches where I was like, okay, I get it, kind of. And then like a, a surprising thing would happen and that would kind of bring me back in. So I felt like I, my attention or my interest kind of undulated like a sound wave up and down, up and down. So I feel like I was kind of ping ponging back and forth about liking parts of it and then kind of ready for the next vignette to move on. Um I don't sometimes I talk about how it's like you know a theater major in college and this just in I think the nicest way possible, this reeks of like postmodern drama, like European <laughs> drama. Uh just absolutely reeks of it. Which is not the film's fault because it was released in 2000 It was filmed in ninety nine and it's, Released in 2000. Um, I am by no means an expert on how you define postmodern. For some people, postmodern is like 50 years old at this point. So, but it just reminded me of the like scores of plays that I read, especially my postmodern drama class, some of which are some of my favorite plays of all time, and some of which are just incredibly pretentious and like, okay, I get it. I don't think this movie is pretentious but it reminds me of those works that I did find uh, pretentious and um, kind of preachy, but I don't think this goes that way, but it was little, little memories of, of college time, kind of diving into the world of European postmodern turn of the century, turn of the millennium themes and ideas.
1: I, I agree with a lot of that. I, I do. Uh, I did keep, keep me grip the whole time and I gave it a five stars, but I uh, would also say that, uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I perfectly welcome that reception because I think that, uh, yeah, this could easily be perceived as, um, at least in terms of some of its symbolism, a little bit overt and a little bit too obvious. And in that sense, uh, bordering on pretentious. But I uh, I was along for the ride personally uh, with multiple rewatches and so on. Sam, uh, it's your first time going around with this as well. What was your reception of songs from the second floor from 2000?
2: As I watched as I embarked on this journey with this film, um, it really made me think about how much I love doing a podcast with the the two of you and Christine, because I get to watch movies that I would never choose myself. um, And I'll probably never revisit. But, you know, they really, it opens me up to things that I think... I don't think I have a narrow-minded view about movies. I think that I, I like a lot of different types of movies. I certainly have, you know, my shtick is. But there's also things that I feel a little too dumb for. This was certainly one of those movies, but I'm still glad that I watched it. I laughed. I went, hmm. And then I also went, okay, um... So it made you feel things It it, it, it it brought me full circle by the end, but Dave, you're not wrong. When you said, uh, Christine would be your ally here. There was a moment (laughs) earlier today where Connor had said the same thing to me.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Christine, if you're listening, check this one out
0: and let us know what you think. I think, yeah, this might be up your alley as well. Uh, Sam, I'm really happy that you brought up the idea of, like, am I too dumb for this movie? I think that's one of its strengths, is that it is, I think, incredibly approachable for, like, a layman to go in. Um, There are some movies that I felt dumb watching. Uh, I could be totally out out of line for saying this, but I feel like Suspiria is a movie I felt a little too dumb to watch. Are you talking about um,
1: the first one or the remake? The first one, yeah. Okay. I was just like kind of
0: lost in what was. I haven't seen the remake, uh, but the original one, Dario Argento. I felt lost watching that movie. Um, honestly, like I enjoyed a lot of the visuals, but this movie, I like it felt inviting, probably because of the way that it was shot, which also gave me uh, theater production energy. Very static shots. Some, I guess they're not sets, Dave. Maybe you have some insight into this, but. If they're not sets, then very interesting location shooting. And so I think it's, while thematically challenging, I think presentation-wise, it's very inviting in its simplicity. And then the further you dig into that simplicity, there is uh, levels of complexity. If that, make, if that If that makes sense at all. <laughs>
1: No, that absolutely makes sense, and is actually a pretty nice segue into one of the things that I wanted to talk about, this film's visual presentation. Uh, this a Roy Anderson film, as we've said, he, uh, <clears throat> he made several uh, films early into his career and then took a long break from making feature films before returning to uh, his passion for making them. Uh, and in the meantime, made some of the most celebrated commercials in Swedish history. Uh, so he's got a real eye for just sort of like, yeah, like vignettes, little, little n- micro narratives that can guide you through a story or an idea. And I think he does that expertly here. And I think that the way he presents it is pretty expertly done. I think that this is a movie that has, I mean, it, it's. Uh, To answer your question, Connor, most of the outdoor sets uh, or locations were at genuine locations, but everything else was filmed on two sound stages over the course of four years. So they constructed all these sets that are uh, very, very unique, very like intimately detailed, yet still austere and cold and sterile at the same time. It's got a really nice balance of like existential direction, but also in, in terms of its detail, but also in terms of its sparseness. Uh, And it does a really good job of balancing those two. It's shot largely using uh, wide angles with a huge depth of field. Like everything in the shot is in focus, which is pretty rare as far as most filmmakers stylization is concerned. And the film really doesn't have close-ups at all. Um, It's a film that uh, opts instead for uh, wide shots, largely because, as as Anderson has said, it's sort of a cinematic tool of arousing empathy and conveying tragedy when you go for a close-up. But when you examine the whole scene from a wider, more, quote-unquote, objective perspective, in long form, it lends itself more to comedy, which kind of brings me to my next question. This is a very dour film. It's got some very heavy themes. I think it's terrifically sad in some ways. But I also think it's kind of hilarious throughout. What was what were your feelings on that? Was this a movie that was like very, very grim and very sallow and very sad? Was it very funny in spite of those elements or was it both?
2: It was definitely both. I for sure laughed out loud at several parts. And like, for me that's a big thing That is especially what right especially when i just said like am i too done for this movie so one scene that's coming to mind is when jesus christ i could not keep track of anyone's name
1: i could probably help with this yeah go ahead
2: uh the the guy who burned down his business it's that cali who's
1: more or less our for lack of a better term in this slew of characters our protagonist our main focus
2: I need to just say this real quick. I thought that guy was this. There are a lot of people who look very similar. And I thought I had to like look it up because I thought it was like the same dude who was like firing one dude who was cutting another guy in half. I was very oh, confused mm-hmm. for uh, literally an hour until I looked it up and was like, oh, <laughs> not. Nah uh anyway uh so he he just burns down his business he uh goes to this restaurant to meet his son and is like talking about how he's got nothing left the only thing he has is what's in this bag and it's just ash he just like pulls out ash and throws it at some of the people and it and it works because it's like not really what he's doing but damn it made me laugh
1: yeah, it's almost like an accident. He, at one point, he lay, he shows his son. Uh, his son's name is uh, Stefan, for uh, for future reference, if we're going to try to keep track of these characters. He's, he's showing him like this. This was my business. Look, this is what is left of it, and it's literally like a, a an envelope full of ashes. He sets the envelope down on the counter, and in one emphatic move, without really thinking about it or intending to do so, he he drops his hand down on the envelope, which thrusts a bunch of ash at the uh, person working at the counter. That's definitely a true laugh out loud moment, and I think you know, obviously, intentionally.
0: The um, magician moment and the saw guy, <laughs> I thought, just also had me laughing. I read the description for watching it was like, in a magician. The Wikipedia description is absolutely horrendous. Dave you should go in and contribute and fill out the and flesh out the, <laughs> the page for it. I think you're qualified enough. but it is like, oh a magician messes up his act or something like that. And I was like, okay, what And it happens and he saw he gets a volunteer and then he saws through the box and the guy just starts weirdly wailing. It's like not a scream. It's like ah ah. <laughs> and then, as he breathes, you see the saw move up and down as it's in his like abdomen. And he's at the hospital. His wife like turns in bed when he's home. He goes ah ah like I don't know whatever noise he's made. And that so that's yeah, dark humor. I think is like how it's I've seen described like online a little. And so definitely like there were some dark humorous moments that got me. And the self flagellating I guess stockbrokers mm-hmm. I read in one description. Um, so just like and I think that's one of the benefits of the ways that it's shot. I can't say I love the presentation of the film, but it, do, it does lend those moments of where your eye kind of wanders to when like, it's static for so long that something unexpected ha- pops in the frame, which adds to the comedic value, which would be lost if it was shot in a more traditional A shot, B shot kind of format.
2: One scene that I feel like really encapsulates sort of everything we're talking about, the good, the bad, and the like, what is uh when we greet the the former president the former leader who turned mm-hmm. one former military
1: leader yeah yeah
2: the former military leader um i laughed i felt uncomfortable and then i also went, okay so the scene i guess they're in his like his his care facility and you're watching his nurses put this bedpan underneath him so he's like clearly like using it, right? And then all of his like generals come in and read him this nice speech. Oh well, you know this dude is like using that bedpan and he's kind of like there's the the hilariousness of it and then the okay I get like he's a little baby now. He's like incompetent, blah 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 blah, military, whatever I get it. Um so I uh, think, like, more to that-, that
1: scene that I'll get into later. But yeah, yeah, go ahead.
2: But I mean I, I think that 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 scene is like not how I would describe the movie, but I would point to that to be like, if you want just like a crash course in what this movie will make you feel and what it will give you, watch this
1: I think that 's a very good reference point for this movie, yeah uh, I think a lot, and I think a lot of the scenes kind of play out in a similar way. I mean, I think that there's definitely humor, horror, cynicism and humanizing these characters. I don't think there's any character in this movie that isn't humanized, however small their role is, which is really insightful, especially for a movie this kind of deadening in its themes. And I think it's got some pretty big themes, and that sort of brings me to some of my favorite uh, scenes, some of which you've already loosely covered, but uh, some that I would like to go over, as well as others. And if anybody has any others that they'd like to jump in and reflect on, I think that would be great. But uh, of this movie, within... 46 little episodic vignettes. Uh, there are some that really drew my attention and some that are like linearly interconnected, one of which we already touched on, which is uh, the magician. So uh, it's a scene in which, yeah, Connor, as you described, the magician selects a volunteer from the audience to perform the famed Saw a Man in Half Illusion, only to botch the trick and actually begin sawing the hapless volunteer. And then we cut to uh, a doctor and a nurse at the hospital as the magician leads the injured volunteer in for their aid, which is like a wordless thing that just kind of like plays out on screen. It's sort of like just, yeah, like set up and then silent punchline, visual punchline. But then it goes a step further. We see the injured volunteer wincing and groaning in bed each time his wife stirs next to him. And then we see the magician staring back into the camera, like breaking the fourth wall, which this movie does several times. And I think in an important way, it breaks the fourth wall and turns this from an observation on our part into an interactive exchange with us as the audience. Like they're kind of not staring at the camera, but rather they're staring out at us, implicating us in witnessing this and sort of drawing us into, at least in this particular example, of them ruminating on their guilt about something having gone wrong in a world where pretty much everything is going wrong.
0: I think this just speaks to like my own bias as like a theater major and someone who spent a lot of, many years of his life kind of like in the theater world I like the comfortability of the of the camera lens, <laughs> and so whenever I mean, like stuff like Deadpool's different, but I think in things like this, where characters are like looking at the camera, breaking the fourth wall, like in this way, is deeply unsettling, which mm. is what he's going for. But it doesn't mean I have to like receiving it, if like appreciate. No, 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 the, no that's totally fair, the tool. Yeah. Uh, it's just kind of like, and I think it's moments like that where I'm like, man, if this is a play. I've at this. It just kind of brings me kind of back to all that that point again. I brought up so like appreciate the tool, but I don't like being on the other end of it, which is what he's going for, I assume.
1: I would think so. Yeah, I, that's the vibe that I get from pretty much any scene where someone's looking dead into camera, which happens several times throughout the movie. It makes it confrontational.
2: Some of the like the deliberate directorial decisions are really astounding because Dave, you said before. That they hired non actors to do this because there were moments where I I swear to God it was like filming okay action and then they would like jump into movement and do and it was so I was really confused on seeing that to the point where I thought like are these actors like I was even questioning that myself and so I guess it just like lends more to the the conversation of things being a farce and uh, like all the world is a stage or whatever, like fancy smancy point he's actually trying to make. But again, I'm like too dumb to figure out.
1: Uh, yeah. Like a deconstruction of audience versus subject barrier, uh, sort of uh, sense that observing it implicates you as a participant in a way. I
0: mean, I mean, God, to get all theater majory on it. I mean, this is like, it's very Brechtian, like Bertolt Brecht, very mm-hmm. notable theater maker of the, like 1920s, 30s, uh, all about alienation, the alienation effect. And I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole, but appreciated what Royan Anderson, right? The director. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many amazing Swedish you know, drama uh, and theater and you know, Scandinavian drama. So it definitely is like, OK, I see the traditions that you're kind of like picking up and using in this interesting piece of cinema. And I, I definitely felt that alienation, Bertollian, you know, Brechtian effect, <laughs> For sure.
1: Yeah, and tradition is also a, a sub-theme that we'll be getting back to a little bit later. Uh, one one of the dominant themes, though, I think in this movie is, is something to do with what one does with themselves when having accepted the rigors and the structures of capitalism as one's sense of identity. I think that's a huge part of this movie, and I think really exemplified in one particular vignette, Calais, the main sort of main characters we discussed, uh, is investigated by insurance adjusters after he's burned down his own uh, his own furniture store for the insurance money. So these adjusters are there in his burnt out store. And he's trying to justify like, look, this was, uh, this was a Shippendale. And though it's now ashes, and I don't have the paper to back it up, it's still a Shippendale, even though it's ashes. And says to the adjusters, "Is like, just because someone hasn't said that you're a person on a piece of paper doesn't mean that you aren't. And exploring like these kind of like absurdist like philosophical fallacies in his own defense, but as this is going on, we see a parade, just a whole procession of these stockbrokers that are passing by in the background, who are just flagellating each other, just whipping each other in the street. And he kind of expresses, uh, uh, Calais does to the insurance adjusters, why don't you just join them in the street? They're actually doing something. These are the stockbrokers who, in the face of economic collapse are taking it upon themselves to try to fix this situation which is a bizarre commentary and one that we'll return to just a little bit later when we get to the quarry scene which i'm sure you both know what i'm talking about and is my favorite scene in the movie and one of my favorite sequences ever (laughs) but um but i think there's really some there's a real tooth philosophical tooth to this in the sense that like In a world where both virtue and vice are rooted in capitalism, the collapse of the economy becomes not just a monetary crisis, but a spiritual one. When one derives their sense of purpose, direction, and even identity from employment and consumption, the collapse of such systems equates to the death of the self, leaving people to retreat to fearful and base superstition or aimless despair.
0: Dave, you did such a great job of summing up so much postmodern drama.
1: (laughs) But I think that's all in there. That's really in the guts of this movie. This is a very a film that is deeply critical of capitalism, uh, at least at least in my take. And, and especially as it's uh, as it's explored later in the iconic quarry scene that we'll cover before we get to that or before we get to any of my other favorites. Are there any other real standout vignette snapshots of this this collapsing world uh,
0: that really stand out to you guys? There was one, not necessarily for the content of the vignette, but it, I think that Kale, and I think it was the, the taxi cab driver who comes up to him as he's, like, sifting through ashes. Stefan's um, his son, yeah. Stefan. Oh, yeah, his son, yes. Um, the way that you brought up earlier of how everything is, like, focused in frame and the way, like, you see the traffic that they talk about, what feels like miles away down the street, um, and I was that sound stage or exterior, like, there's this very interesting balance. Like, what it, you feel kind of weird about how the way this is shot, and like, you can see the little lights, the cars, like, slowly moving. So, I was just really impressed with the staging, the presentation of that specific vignette. Like, that's one image that stuck in my mind. Like, just how they pulled that off and to have it be empty, and all the buildings look the same. Um, the repetitive, I don't know, just that, that visually that one, but yet really stuck out with me.
1: And a fantastic example. Anderson has said that he, uh, and, and this film does this film and most of his films feel like this because it is a fixed static perspective from the camera with this tremendous depth of field where you're getting just all of this rich detail within an unmoving frame. And, So many details in the background, so much attention to blocking, so much attention to how space is defined. And in particular, one of the really interesting things about that scene is it reveals this painterly influence. That scene is sort of uh, intended to be an inversion of the Edward Hopper painting Nighthawks. So from instead instead of looking into the diner, you're in the diner looking out. Outside of the diner, Connor, as you've alluded to, there is this, which is a recurring theme throughout the movie, this endless sense of traffic. It's as though people are trying, everyone is trying to get somewhere else, but because everyone is trying to escape, no one can get anywhere, which is a pretty powerful metaphor, especially at play later in another one of my favorite vignettes.
2: I think like that just sort of like hopelessness and devastation really stuck with me. And the guy who gets fired, his, I don't know, I think that like, I am somewhere in my life where I'm thinking about like my career and choices that I've made and him being like, I've been here for 30 years, you know, and and you're going to fire me like this. And the, what we see of his life beforehand, his wife has the, the, the day off and it's like, Hey, spend it with me. Let's have fun. And he's like, no, 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 I can't, I have to go in. So there's like so much of his life he's putting on hold or he's like not living and wasting for a job that's like, yeah, you know what? We're just going to have to get rid of this guy. So he also though is begging to say, don't do this. He's on the floor, like literally on the floor.
1: Clutching at the boss's leg, yeah.
2: Yeah, losing his whole self, all of his dignity. So it's not just like the the opportunities you're missing out of, but it's also like the, the pieces of yourself that you're like leaving behind or purposefully saying don't matter uh, because you're like a slave to the, to the grind, a slave to business. And it came to me in a moment where I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm actually, I've been feeling this lately. So like struck a very like, Personal chord and made me feel like both angry, sad, and everything else in between.
0: Well, and the way too of all the businessmen and their offices slowly opening mm-hmm. the flanking doors, and then and crazy. it's not and it's not like a musical choreographed moment. It feels very natural. Like I don't know, it's, it's it's such a tough movie to talk about and describe. In some ways, very easy to talk about. In other ways but that was, yeah, like hyper-focused attention to detail is present, Is I think, especially in that vignette as well.
1: Yeah, that's definitely a powerful scene. And Sam, I think you're really getting at something in its connection to the vignette that precedes it because it is his uh, his, his wife trying to urge him to like, listen, we've earned this. Let's have a day. Let's have a day just for us. And he's like, uh, I haven't missed a day in 14 years. How would it look? Only to go to find himself fired There's another really interesting scene that involves the traffic, too. This coming a little bit later when Stefan has taken over for his brother Thomas, who, by the way, has gone insane because he's writing poetry. It's a very European art house idea. But at the same time, it's also at the root of this movie, you know, in an insane world that is so hell-bent on the maintenance of collapsing order are people that think outside of that structure considered insane.
0: Uh, In this world, at least they are. You know, Uh, that, that reminded me of Office Space a little.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's of very it, resonant of that.
0: Of when Ron Livingston decides like, you know what? Just fuck it. Comes into the Hawaiian shirts, guts his fish on the deck. I mean, uh, you know, that, totally different movie, but you know, that also released around the same time as, as this one. So just, that that was one True. theme idea that uh, I thought about since I love office space so much. And yeah, like everyone's used hit like the, the Bob's you, him as crazy. Bob's uh, just everyone's like, what are you doing with your his friends? What are you doing with your life? And, even though he's decided that I'm going to reject this capitalistic corporate structure, and i want to be all the happier for it.
1: Yeah, and Thomas is out of the picture. Stefan, uh, trying to be responsible, has taken over this job because his father's business has just burned down, unbeknownst to him intentionally. Um, he's trying to pick up the slack, and he gives a ride to uh, this military figure, this guy who's tasked with delivering a speech to, as we've discussed before, this uh, 100-year-old military leader for a celebration of his 100th birthday. Which in and of itself feels like such a childish use of like bureaucratic structure. But this guy is talking on this ride about this speech that he's written for this comrade, a speech about how life is a road and tradition is our map. However, at the same time, they're completely stuck in traffic that barely moves, which kind of begs the question. If life is a road and tradition a map, of what uses tradition when trapped in infinitely gridlocked traffic? Pretty. This movie is sort of like a, an existential onion in terms of its layers, and some of the symbolism is very overt, but some of it takes some teasing out, which is why I'm glad I've watched it more than once. So, as we just covered, the that military uh, speechwriter is stuck in traffic at a time when he's supposed to be getting this speech to this ceremony, which we've alluded to before. There's this aged, uh, one hundred year old figure. This uh, this uh, figure within governance, within uh, sort of like a uh, land holdings, this titanic figure that is a cultural and military and institutional touchstone within this world, uh, who's being celebrated and decorated this day, uh, even though we meet him as he's like, uh, deliriously senile and using a bedpan in a literal steel crib cared for by nurses. The uh, military brass come in and they begin decorating him with uh, all these admonishments and, and talking about talking about his achievements. And uh, as they're doing this, at one point, the uh, subject of this, the, uh, the military leader, the aged military leader, using a bedpan in a crib, interrupts their uh, ceremonial decoration of him uh, by breaking the decorum of the proceedings and asking them to, quote, give his regards to Goering. Uh, and then uh, he continues and gives the Nazi salute. This has a lot to do with Swedish history during World War II. Uh, Sweden, of course, was neutral during World War II, but they uh, were accused, especially by Winston Churchill, who is not someone I'm a fan of, but has a valid point, I think, here, uh, that Sweden was uh, pretty aptly playing both sides. One big part of uh, the Swedish treatment of World War II was allowing that their train lines be used to, to send German troops to invade eastern Russia, Um, or Western Russia, uh, largely uh, allowed by them despite their neutrality. And the sort of like stain of guilt that remains within this culture about that uh, is something that's really going to be very relevant at the end of this movie and the last vignette we'll talk about. But I think it's very aptly alluded to here because these military leaders, when admonishing this pillar of their military and industrial history, are awkwardly quieted by his... Allegiance to Nazism, <laughs> which I think is a pretty telling and and pretty bold move for a Swedish filmmaker to confront their own history in that regard, so so nakedly and so bluntly. So I find that to be a really impactful scene as well, especially as it ties into the last uh, the last vignette of the film.
0: Yeah, I, what this scene reminded me of uh, a little bit ago. I did a like I guess a year ago a deep dive into like swiss neutrality in world war ii and also playing both sides and buying jewish art that the nazis stole and were selling to you know like from all, the, all these really horrible things that the swiss government allowed and private individuals
1: And also people, not, to, not to cut you off sweden did also do a good job of accepting jewish refugees they did yes. play both sides but it was a very complicated time for them as a culture uh but go on
0: and I'm not looking to oversimplify. What I'm saying is, this just reminded me of like these complex, like I feel like for us, World War II narratives are so oftentimes boilerplate, you know, like very simple narratives. so binary, yeah. Binary, exactly. So this scene reminded me of like younger generations, older generations. Roy Anderson is, I think, in his 80s now. So I he's that's right. um, so somebody who did not. Was not of like conscious age, like he was a young child, I think, probably during the Second World War. But interesting of how folks after the fact are looking back and recognize with this pretty complicated history. Uh, and so I thought this was a really confrontational and clever way to sort of acknowledge that and to kind of like work through that and to think about that. Um, so this was, it was just reminded me of some research that, just a rabbit hole I went down earlier and just interesting to see that pop up uh, on a different side of the European continent.
2: Yeah, all I have to add was, I think when I watched that scene, I went, damn, okay, out loud, <laughs> because I couldn't believe it. And, and when, at first when he says Goring, I was like, is art Nazis? And then to be the
1: Goring, yeah.
2: <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah,
1: very interesting stuff that we're going to revisit in the last vignette that we'll cover, which is the very end of the film. Before we get to that and another scene, I would say, if you've not seen this film Please watch it before we discuss those two vignettes. I think they're so impressive and so captivating that one should go into them blind. So if you've not seen it, go ahead and turn off this podcast now. Check out the movie. It's only an hour and a half. And then come back for those last two. But before that, Connor, you've got a really good one as well.
0: I do. Uh, and I ask wanted to add that this movie is, as of this recording, free on YouTube with English subtitles.
1: Yes, although I will say, I think the reason it's free on YouTube is because it has an applied filter that, like, for fair use, is different enough that it desaturates mm. the black of this movie, like, mm. the, the darkness of this movie. Like, literal darkness. Like, it, it desaturates the movie. Although, that being said, like, they are intentionally... The the figures in this movie are, like, intentionally made up to look sallow and, like, sickly. But even so, like, uh, I think that's part of the reason. And also, if you're going to watch it on YouTube, understand that it is a YouTube algorithm translation. I really desperately want a copy of this movie on a Region 1 DVD for a proper translation, because I think this is just a, a close but algorithmically approximated translation of what's being said in this movie. So, if you're going to watch it on YouTube for free, please do, but know that it is probably not the best way to watch it, albeit, as far as I know, in uh, the United States, the only way to.
2: So, Dave, you mean to tell me when uh, I was going off about this at our morning meeting at work, uh, because I was like,
0: it's so bright! It is,
2: it was fake? Like, Like, that's not real? I...
1: Oh, I think it's both. I think it's It's a very bright film. <clears throat> it doesn't have a lot of contrast. And especially the figures themselves are painted, like made up to look drained of life. But that being said, like you can tell via like some of the contrasts and stuff that there's a filter on this for like legal reasons that they can be on YouTube because it's been affected. Uh, and I can I, I would just imagine that watching it proper, with a proper translation and proper definition would probably be better. But I don't know where you can find that. So if you can watch it, watch it on YouTube for free.
0: Well, sorry for that uh, tangent.
1: (laughs) No, it's a a very good point to bring up. I meant to bring it up earlier.
0: Uh, So one of the, I think, most pivotal scenes in the movie, uh, there's a boardroom where everybody's looking into this orb, object for some sort of divine provenance of what to do going forward. Um, and Dave, I would just love to hear your thoughts on this scene and your kind of breakdown of how it was of, of your kind of interpretation and thoughts on it. A
1: great scene. I mean, this film seems to summarize that all, all corporations and all like uh, government I- uh, adjacent entities are amalgamated into one kind of broad uh, service that has board members and a CEO and so on. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's reductive, but effective. As far as metaphor, uh, so we see all these people amassed in this boardroom, trying to figure out what they're going to do about the collapse of the, the obvious collapse, the disintegration, almost the, like molecular disintegration of the society, as is evidenced in this scene. <clears throat> they're all sitting there uh, talking to the soothsayer who has a crystal ball, and they're trying to divine what they should do as corporate and uh, bureaucratic representatives from, you know, uh, a, a medium. Pretty much, which again ties into the sense that, like, if one derives their sense of purpose and self from economic structures that can collapse, what does one retreat to when they do? And horrifyingly, and I think presciently, as far as this film expresses, uh, oftentimes it's uh, very what's the word I'm looking for? Very uh, outdated, very um, very archaic uh, traditions or superstitions, which is why they, as a company, are viewing this orb for guidance. As they're doing this, one of the board members stands up though, distraught and points out the window saying, that house over there, that house across the street, it's moving. And gradually everyone's like, well, that doesn't make sense. But then they look out the window and they're like, oh my God, it is moving. (laughs) So it is almost as though matter itself is failing in this world or rebelling. It reminds me a lot of uh, the Polish film uh, that I've uh, sung the praises of before, Escape from the Liberty Cinema, where like, Literal celluloid of film is rejecting communism uh, or oppression, so it's. I think it's a very like apt off-screen metaphor. It's also great too that all these board members then start freaking out about this newfound sense of disorder and all go to exit the exit the room in desperation and are all freaking out and all get stuck and like stymied at the door because they're these people that are supposed to be bureaucrats and the people that maintain established order. Are too frightened and confused to realize that the door opens inward. Like, it's, it's like Igmar Bergman directing Monty Python sketches. It's crazy. But yeah, love that scene as well.
0: I mean, yeah, this is definitely, I think, one of the funniest. And I mean, it's so, you have this whole, what, there's probably like 20 people in this room all in suits, and you have the suit, and they're all like holding the orb up and looking through it to try to gain some sort of insight. I, this is, I think for me, one of the funniest scenes and I, I'm not going on a tangent, but there's an amazing South Park episode, um, about 15 years, I guess like 2015, 16, um, where, uh, Stan is trying to return Randy's pina colada mixer, Margaritaville mixer. <laughs>
1: this is a good one. Yeah. I like this.
0: episode. And so basically he takes it, Stan takes it back to the circular tab where his purchased and then, no, oh, you have to go to this if you want the full refund. I, high up the chin, basically going to the federal reserve eventually but then it says all right we'll uh we'll uh consult and then we'll get back to you and so stan here's um basically a chicken getting its head cut off that then runs around a board uh and the chicken there's like about a dozen different options and the chicken lands on bailout so stan gets a bailout uh for his return to margarita mixer and that this scene just reminded me of um trey parker and matt stone their approach to you know, the meaninglessness of business, of finances, of how really all of this shit just happens and nobody's really in control of it.
1: And that becomes especially relevant as you roll into my favorite uh, sequence in the film and one of my favorite recent discoveries in cinema. I, I adore this, this, uh, this collage of vignettes and the narrative that it sows. So after this, we see that there are rocks being piled in a quarry. It's unclear what they're doing. They're just piling rocks. uh, And it's being overseen by members of governance, uh, seemingly trade unionists, people that oversee the maintenance of order in this collapsing world, watching these people stack rocks. And then one of them gives a signal to the folks above, and a dummy, a straw-filled dummy, is dropped onto the rocks. We then cut from that, without any further context, into uh, a lot of those figureheads of state and, uh, and trade and religion and bureaucracy all gathered in this uh, academic space where they're talking to this little girl. And they're telling this little girl things like that uh, some things must be done and that those with experience should be trusted to be the administers of that, that directed action. And in very condescending language, are suggesting to her that that makes sense, right? We then cut immediately uh, to the next vignette, which is hundreds of people gathered around the top of this quarry. uh, And then out of frame, the little girl from the previous scene is led blindfolded by members of the council onto a plank that oversees this quarry and then is shoved off into the quarry to her death. That then, uh, because there are loudspeaker towers that are erected there and there are hundreds in attendance, suddenly this serene, almost ceremonial song rounds out the scene after they've just pushed this little girl to her death, to, uh, in, in seemingly in order to appease something. This brings us then immediately to a bar where the leaders of the ceremony... And seemingly the country at large, uh, people like the clergy, people like the military, corporate leaders, trade unionists are all gathered and are all drunken and defeated and lamenting that they have, quote, sacrificed the bloom of youth for nothing. That it has ultimately this retreat to this kind of more archaic and brutalizing ritual in the vacuum of a collapsing society ultimately didn't solve anything. Uh, And then right after that, we cut to the next and uh, final video in the sequence, which is a lot of those uh, corporate and military leaders pushing giant piles of luggage toward an airport. So I think what's going on here is pretty, uh, as as is a lot of the symbolism in this movie, pretty on the nose, but pretty poignant. Uh, This notion that an older generation who are the administrators of order and the bureaucracy of maintaining that order have failed and are sacrificing a younger generation in order to maintain that doomed order. And when that doesn't work, what do they do? They get drunk and fucking leave. Again, this movie started shooting in 96, released in 2000. I can't think of a more poignant social satire than this movie in recent memory, because I think that's a very uh, cogent metaphor for where we're at in our current state of decline.
0: I think it's also, God, I just hate myself so much. Uh, the theater major coming back, um, it reminded me so much of Iphigenia, the daughter of King Agamemnon, who was prophesied to be yeah, the sacrifice her because, in order to save Helen from the Trojan War, you know, from the Trojans, you have to sacrifice Iphigenia so the gods will put winds in the sails of the Greek armada so they can go go to troy and it's a great inverse of where yeah the older generation is sacrificing this girl and it doesn't happen it doesn't work the winds the metaphorical winds of the economic sales are not filled and they flee um and so i thought that was just a great inversion on a on like a millennia's old trope and um you know story that that i think that part really resonated
1: also a really sick and darkly funny sequence like i remember like i've seen one Roy anderson film before this i've since seen them all but um I, I got a taste for like his 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 language and his pacing his visual language and his pacing within editing how he frames vignettes that create a narrative structure and in this one i i just saw that dummy drop and i thought to myself all right there's no way this isn't going to tie into the next thing and then the moment it's the child being condescendingly explained that elders have everyone's best interest at heart. I was just like, oh, no. And then it cuts to the next one. And it's everyone gathered around the quarry. And before she walked into frame, I was just cackling because it's so dark, but so predictable because it is so reflective of a kind of horrifying world.
2: Yeah, it was another one of those moments where I just went, are they? No. (laughs) oh my god Uh, and then just pure silence for the rest of the film i was like oh i mean i get it but like holy fuck
1: yeah really going for the throat with these metaphors and i think the movie does uh as i said uh it does play in some overt symbology that could you could argue detracts from it but we'll we'll discover whether or not that's true in the next scene but as far as that scene yeah that's That's an all-timer for me. I really love that sequence. Uh, And another
0: example of the presentation, the drawn-out nature of it, the static camera, um, being an effective way to build tension. And I think also just makes it funny that it's just like this long – like you know it's going to happen. And so another, you know, I think there's there's a million ways to shoot every scene, and there's one version where it's like you're on the close-up of the girl's face, the crowd members, uh, but this is, it just lets it play out in the Brechtian manner to show, you know, what is happening full-scale, let the audience determine, you know, giving it all to the audience and not trying to emotionally manipulate a sense of catharsis about what's happening, just to let the action roll. The
1: objectivity of a wide shot versus a close-up. Yeah, exactly. That brings us into the final scene, and this again ties into some of the overt symbology of the movie or symbolism of the movie. There is a scene earlier on where uh, Calais, uh, our protagonist, uh, down on his luck and unable to figure out what to do next, approaches a friend at an expo who is selling uh, figures of the crucified Christ. Which you know, that one's pretty obvious—the commodification of religion, spiritual bankruptcy. Uh, This is, you know, very even for a European film is very like. Densely sy- symbolic and obviously very uh, transparent. But it does tie into the final scene of the movie, which I think is pretty jaw-dropping, at least in one moment. So that's Calais meeting this uh, salesman friend after he's agreed to start selling some of these figures of the crucified Christ. Um, and his friend is angrily disappointed in his investment of these crucified figures and is tossing them at a large like dump, just basically this open field of refuse. Uh, the salesman states in his disappointment that in times like these he should have known better than to have tried selling the uh, the likeness of a quote loser. After he's dispelled with all of these uh, these crucifixes, he leaves Calais standing in disillusionment as uh, a couple of figures start winding their way down a path. Uh, and they have been the whole shot; like it's like a five minute shot. So this has all been going on the whole time in the background, and it's just becoming apparent because of blocking because of a depth of field that includes both foreground and background, but where it focuses your attention and how that attention shifts throughout the landscape of the frame. So you realize these figures have been walking toward him the whole time. And this movie alludes to earlier that Calais himself is individually haunted by this one ghost, this figure named Sven, who committed suicide because of financial difficulties. Sometime after Calais has borrowed a substantial sum of money from him. And in a sense, therefore, vicariously making Calais feel guilty about this suicide. It's almost as though people are being haunted, physically haunted by the ghosts of their guilt. So uh, Calais sees Sven and uh, also the sacrificed little girl that we just seen approaching him along with several other figures. And he tries to fend them off, pleading with them that like, what else do you want from me? What am I supposed to do? And in his frustration, he throws something at them as he does a wave of extras like 60 to 70 extras who have been hidden in this shot for like five minutes emerge from the ground stand up and start running in the opposite direction in fear and then after Callie recognizes that they're all there they along with Sven and along with the sacrificed little girl continue their march toward him uh haunting him again this a pretty resonant uh, allegory and metaphor for cultural guilt we see among these this mass of people that emerge from nowhere with a practical effect, which is incredible it's jaw dropping stuff, and one of like my favorite moments the, i wasn't I, I was sold on the movie before then, but that was when it was like all right, this is a five star Uh, seeing that wave of humanity come toward him and what they represent. Because if you look at them closely, even with the YouTube uh, lower definition, you can see that some of them are wearing the striped uniforms of Nazi concentration camps. Again, getting back to the cultural history of guilt that Sweden has, uh, the cultural history of um, their participation and allowance of the Holocaust in their supposed neutrality, and how that haunts them still. Uh, enacted as a metaphor for the hordes, like the hundreds of oppressed and ignored and disregarded and discarded members of uh, a social history that have been paved over in favor of a more uh, simplistic capitalist narrative. And that it doesn't, only by being haunted by that as a culture, do we ever confront the cost of that kind of society. Uh, and that being a visual metaphor at the end of this movie is stunning, I think. Uh, that moment when they, the, those legions of people emerge uh, for me was the real selling point of the film. Any thoughts on that final scene?
0: I, I thought you summed it up perfectly. I don't know if I have anything else, <laughs> else to add. Um, yeah, agree with everything you said.
2: I think that I really needed to hear this synthesis and and Dave your, your take on all of this because when the movie ended, I just turned the t v off and just went upstairs to bed, so I was like, <laughs> Okay, I guess, so having time to to consider and reconsider it, I'm glad because you know it it's it's I like it more it's more meaningful now
1: well, you know that's kind of what I was hoping for because. I I I'm I'm a little bit of a novice to uh to art house films. I've I've done a little bit of my share, but there's so much and and I really haven't properly sunk my teeth into a lot of it. But I do think Connor as you've alluded to, this is one of the more approachable versions of art house cinema, because, perhaps because its symbolism is so overt, um but also because it, it's it's extremely dark in its expression of theme and metaphor, but also very funny. Uh, And I think without that balance, it probably wouldn't have worked as well and probably wouldn't have stood out to me as much as it has. Um, Does anybody else, before we uh, wrap up this episode, have anything to add about songs from the second floor? This uh, Roy Anderson, uh, Swedish art house, uh, anti-capitalist haunted history drama comedy?
2: the scene that takes place like calais once he like gets the big crucifixion statue Mm -hmm. and he's like taking it on public trans um there's like a scene before that where this guy gets his like finger stuck in uh the the butt or the the fucking like subway or whatever and there's like a whole commotion of people being like well, you're stupid. Like, why did this happen? Like you did this or haven't you ever gotten your finger stuck in a door before it could happen to anybody. And I just, you know, it's another one of those things that kind of hit me right in the, in a, in a a spot where I was already thinking of just like, you know, how frustrated I get with people when they make stupid decisions. And I'm like, couldn't you just see that it was going to end this way? And it's like, yeah, but you only know that because you've made this mistake before and you've done those things. So it was a, it was a nice like moment to, to, to stop and to like, remember the humanity of every single person around you. (laughs)
1: Well, you know what, Sam, I'm really glad you bring that up. This film uh, does make frequent use of its quotations of a, uh, a work of a Peruvian poet named uh, Cesar Vallejo. It's a recurring motif. It's uh, the recurrence of things like um, people saying beloved, beloved is he who blank. Uh, and then just naming like very mundane and sort of casual and at times pitiful examples like beloved is the bald man with no hat. Beloved is he who sits down at one point in that poem. And as featured in the vignette, you're talking about beloved is the man who gets his finger caught in a door. So it, and and if you're familiar with Vallejo's work, uh, which I've only become familiar with through this movie uh, and especially that work in particular, it's, it's a real emphasis on, the downtrodden, the underconsidered, the underclass—people that are are disregarded casually by a society that has become corrupted more by moral bankruptcy. When it should humanize each individual person, and again, I think that returning to what I said before is the strength of this movie. There are characters who are villainous, there are characters who are horrible, it's selfish, there are characters who are short-sighted and stupid, but they're all humanized in this movie. So I think that this movie, in spite of being an extremely bleak, almost gallows humor, black comedy, really illuminates humanity in some powerful and sympathetic ways, which I think is another true selling point of the work, because otherwise it would just be bitterness. And instead, it is uh, an olive branch of understanding in a world gone wrong, I'd say. And that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, dear gentle listeners, is Songs from the Second Floor Roy Anderson film. I mentioned another film of his earlier in our podcast uh, series uh, about endlessness that I saw, which is really good. It's a little less connected as far as linear structure and is strictly vignettes uh, and is a good deal more dour and humorless, but I think as visually spectacular as this one, there are two other films, you the living and uh, a pigeon sat on a branch reflecting on existence, which aren't as great, uh, but are also interesting and shot in a similar way and get a similar theme. So I would say if you are intrigued by this discussion, uh, if you have an interest in art house, but don't know where to uh, make your entry point, if you're interested in Swedish cinema, or if you're just interested in uh, extremely dark comedies, then this may be one for you to check out and one that I really adore. Again, five stars for me. Uh, oh, what do you guys think? How many stars? Actually, we've never, we've never done this before, what do you think? Out of, I would say out of five. I'm giving it all the stars myself. <laughs> two and three-fourths
0: three two two okay okay
1: before
2: the podcast one and a half <laughs> now
1: three and a half
0: okay all right i'll make my like yeah three three and a half yeah i'm with you sam
1: uh, it's not bad, folks. So if you're uh, if you're into our individual tastes, or specifically if you're into my uh, more deranged taste in cinema, then this may be one for you to check out. Uh, but I am really glad that you guys were along for the ride with uh, what I think is one of the more difficult films that I presented. Uh, kudos to uh, Christine for having a really good summer and and uh, and being away, exploring and adventuring. But I do wish she was here to sink her teeth into it, and I really look forward to talking to her about it at some point as well. So that's it for now. We're going to be coming back uh, next time with a new theme. We're going to be trying something new and uh, bringing you a new round of movies. But until then, of course, you can find us on all of our socials, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can find us uh, on Twitter, I guess. All the other ones are Butter With That. But then because of Twitter, it's Butter With That one, uh, as far as I recall. And also you can send us an email, which you can reach us through uh, podcast at gmail.com. Uh, perhaps the best way to get in touch with us if you want your correspondence read on the show. And we've been aching for some emails, so send us one. Uh, other than that, of course, is the Movie John Podcast Network uh, that hosts a bunch of great shows that you should check out. Aside from that, anything else we want to plug or recommend before we depart? I don't think so. Don't think so. All right. Well, you know, uh, I suppose until next time, thank you so much for listening. And, uh be wary of uh, bureaucrats who suggest to you that they know better than you, because they might be uh, ready to uh, shove you down into a quarry in a a sacrifice that ultimately means nothing. (laughs) But uh, absent that, uh, if things are going better than that for you, we'll see you next time. And uh, of course, until then, thanks for listening and have a good whatever.